And at the end of the first day, I remember ringing my wife, Jane, at the end of the first day of this course and saying to Jane, I don't know what on earth is going on here. It feels like a complete waste of time. And I was within a hair's breadth of, of, of packing my bags and going home. Thankfully, I stayed. And by the Wednesday afternoon, bear in mind, we'd been talking about these problems. Every time we talked about them and coached through them, we got deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the Wednesday afternoon, I remember that the lady said to us, does any of you want to go any further? And the guy on my right said, no. The guy on my left said, no. And I looked at her and said, well, if they don't want to go any further, I don't want to go any further in front of them, but I wouldn't mind going for a walk with you. And I went for a walk with this lady into a village in a new forest, and that's where I experienced my unlock moment. I went further, and in the process of going further, I was made aware of aspects of my being, aspects of my life and, and experience that turned everything upside down. I emerged from that course a changed person. And it was on the one hand terrifying, but on the other hand hugely liberating. And that's what has really powered me forwards into the rest of my life. What do you think is the essential DNA of the CEOs we need today and in the future to be able to navigate this shift from profit to purpose-led leadership? I think these leaders have to have gone on their own personal journey, which included at least one unlock moment. I think they have to have gone that deep in themselves and gone through such personal transformation themselves that they can then offer that experience to the world. You know, when you look in someone's eyes and you think, have they, have they been there? And I think purpose-driven leaders, if they're going to stay the course and have integrity and authenticity on that path, they need to have been there personally. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. One of the books that fundamentally changed my outlook early in my coaching journey was Challenging Coaching by John Blakey and Ian Day, one of the UK's best-selling leadership books. It explores a way to bring powerful challenge into the coaching conversation in a way that resonates strongly with senior leaders and helps them to accelerate their growth. Not all coaches agree that it's right for the coach to be too challenging, but in my own work, it's been a real game changer. Today, I'm delighted to have one of the authors, Dr. John Blakey, here on The Unlock Moment. John has been an executive coach to over 130 CEOs from 22 different countries, 
board-level leaders in organisations such as Capgemini, Kellogg's, British Airways, the NHS and the BBC. For 10 years, he was a board advisor on leadership development and executive coaching to global corporates. He's also worked extensively in elite sports, developing coaches in a variety of sports, from handling the media and managing the politics, to leading team selection and developing inspirational communication skills. Today, he works with a small number of ambitious and pioneering CEOs, particularly in the B Corp movement. John is also the author of The Trusted Executive, Nine Leadership Habits That Inspire Results, Relationships and Reputation. And his new book, Force for Good, How to Thrive as a Purpose-Driven Leader, is coming out in summer 2024. I'm looking forward to hearing John's take on how leaders can perform at their best, build trust, challenge themselves and deliver exceptional results. And of course, I'm curious to learn about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that shaped his own life's journey. Dr. John Blakey, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. What a wonderful introduction. I'll try to live up to it as best I can. Uh, but yeah, great to be with you. Great to be with your listeners and really looking forward to the conversation we're, we're about to have. Fantastic. Thanks so much for coming. Now, today you're a highly successful and may I say esteemed coach, speaker and author. But where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? Yeah, I think the clock starts in terms of the unlock moment. The clock starts for me, age 32. I think the events that happened in that year, everything that had happened to me before that led up to it and everything that's happened since then led from it. So I think when I heard about your concept of the unlock moment, I certainly can relate to that because that certainly was a pivotal transformational experience for me. And uh, yeah, I'd be very intrigued to, uh, to discuss it and share it with you. I mean, even before you tell me about it, that idea of my life led up to that moment and my life has continued from that moment is a really, really amazing way to think about that idea of an unlock moment. So tell me what was it that happened in that year that was so pivotal? Yeah, I'll try and sort of put this into a, a bite-sized chunk, which is always difficult. But if I summarize, my life up to that point, I could feel in that year when I was 32 that certain things were coming to a bit of a limit. I'd got a young family. I was a very ambitious technology executive. and. Um, I could feel pressure building in my life. And I, I think deep down, I knew it wasn't sustainable. And I was concerned that I was going to hit the buffers in some sort of way. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. Thankfully, I got the opportunity that year when I was 32 to go on a course, which was called Advanced Change Management. And I went on it expecting to learn the latest techniques and theories for helping other people change. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock, a bit of a rude awakening when I realized the advanced change management was actually going to happen to me wow. on that course. It was an experiential course. And to set the scene, we turned up, there was me and two partners from, as was at that time, a consultancy called Coopers and Librand, which, mm -hmm. which is now part of PwC. So there was myself, two partners from Coopers and Librand. We turned up on a Monday morning into this hotel in the New Forest. And we sat down in one of the hotel bedrooms. So I remember the, the bed had been cleared out of the room and it was quite a small space. And there was a lady there with us who was the facilitator. I later became aware that she was a coach. But at that time, 
that's not how you talked about these people. The word coaching didn't really exist in business life, but everything that she did was fabulous coaching in terms of that, that week we had together. But of course, I at the time was completely oblivious to this experience called coaching. And we sat down and we'd all had to take a work problem with us. And we shared this work problem. And this lady said, right, we're going to sit in this hotel bedroom for five days and we're going to talk about these problems. And I remember looking at my watch and thinking, no, no, we'll be done by two o'clock. It's, it's <laughs> not that complicated. And at the end of the first day, I remember ringing my wife, Jane, at the end of the first day of this course and saying to Jane, I don't know what on earth is going on here. It feels like a complete waste of time. And I was within a hair's breadth of, of, of packing my bags and going home. Uh, thankfully, I stayed. And by the Wednesday afternoon, bear in mind, we've been talking about these problems. Every time we talked about them and coached through them, we got deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the Wednesday afternoon, I remember that the lady said to us, uh, to all three of us, we were sat there and she said, does any of you want to go any further? Hmm. And the guy on my right said, no. The guy on my left said, no. And I looked at her and said, well, if they don't want to go any further, I don't want to go any further in front of them, but I wouldn't mind going for a walk with you. And I went for a walk with this lady into a village in a new forest, and that's where I experienced my unlock moment. I went further, and in the process of going further, I was made aware of aspects of my being, aspects of my life and, and experience that turned everything upside down. And um, I emerged from that course a changed person. And it was on the one hand terrifying, but on the other hand, hugely liberating. And I say terrifying because I had to let go of a lot of things that I'd held very close that I thought were essential for my mental well-being, if you like. And I thought that if I let go of those things, I would just collapse in a heap. But actually letting go of them liberated me and something new was birthed in that. And that's what has really powered me forwards into the rest of my life. And um, I think I shared with you in the prep for the call that uh, what was birthed in me was a faith. Um, and to your listeners, it may sound a bit odd, but you know, I went on a course not believing, not having a faith. A week later, I came back. I believed I had a faith. Um, it was an incontrovertible reality to me after the end of that week. And it's that that has changed everything in my life and in my work. Isn't that amazing? And I started this podcast to have interesting conversations with people that I thought were interesting and, and I'm a curious person. And I have learned so much from so many people who've come on and talked about these moments that are so pivotal to them in their life journey. And one of the commonalities that I hear in your story too is how vivid that recollection is, how vivid that, that whole picture in your, your mind, the sounds, the smells, the, what it felt like to be in that space. Mm. But also the commonality that I hear coming through time after time is I came out, out of that moment knowing a thing I didn't know before. And I think I hear that really, really clearly in you. You described how it felt at 32 leading up to that place. And then you knew something very clear afterwards. Yes. And one of the metaphors I use for that, Gary, is that I would describe up to the age of 32 that I was like a person living in a house 
that had lost something and knew it was there in the house somewhere and was searching and searching and turned everything upside down in that house. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd ripped the sofa to pieces. I'd, I'd sort of pulled the bookcases out and looked behind them to try and find this thing that I felt was missing. And you know, the irony is that the moment I gave up looking and sat down and just went, I give up, it's like a door opened in that house that I never knew existed. And I walked into that room and everything that I'd lost, I found. Isn't that amazing? The moment that I stopped looking was the moment I found it. Yes. So here's, here's the book that I tried to write and realized I couldn't on the unlock moment, which was, here is the recipe for how you will find your unlock moment. And I struggled with that concept for a few months earlier this year to try and write that book. And I realized I couldn't because there isn't a recipe, because if there were a recipe, life would be so easy. We'd all go off and find our fulfillment and find our purpose in that kind of way. And I realized when I thought back to all these stories and so many people say, my unlock moment, which is not the moment when I acted differently necessarily, but it's the moment when I knew a thing I didn't know before, was very frequently sitting in the car at the traffic lights or staring out the kitchen window or, you know, it, it is exactly what you beautifully articulated there. The moment I stopped looking was the moment that, that I found it. Yeah. And I think there's something which I can't quite put into words, but is the, um, the mindset of not trying and allowing your brain to do the work it needs to do. Yes, and if I can bring in a spiritual sort of word around that, I, I see it as a moment of surrender, a moment mm. of surrender, and um, a moment of, of giving up, really, um, or giving in. But it's not the world's understanding of what giving up means. It's not a, it's not a negative thing. It's a surrendering thing, and um, maybe that's necessary in order to invite new awareness and I talked about having certain mental structures that I'd held on to very closely because I didn't believe I could survive without them. It's it's the surrendering of that belief and the willingness to take the risk that there there might be something else that yeah you don't know but the likes of which has the potential to change a huge amount. But but to open up to that, to surrender to that, is a humbling is a is a very humbling experience because. It acknowledges your own frailties and vulnerabilities in a very visceral way. I think it's fantastic the way you, you bring that to life. And the question I was going to ask was that it happened in this time. It happened with these people or with a particular person. Was it because of a thing that that person, that facilitator, that coach did or said? Or was it nothing really to do with that? Was it? completely within you? Great, great question. And, I, and I'd say both. The way I, again, I, I sort of use metaphors for these things because sometimes words fail you, but I liken it a bit to an egg, an egg that's waiting to crack. And that what an egg needs is, is it, needs a, it needs a hen to sit on it. It needs, it needs the, the warmth and the safety of that environment, but only the egg knows when it's ready to crack. And I think when I went on that course, I was ready to crack. But what I credit this lady facilitator with was she had this incredible sense of acceptance and safety and non-judgment. And she wasn't trying to make me crack. She just 
create an environment in which I felt it was as safe as it ever was going to be to crack. And of course, what I later learned was that the skills that she used were coaching skills. And when I learned that, I thought, wow, can you imagine if I one day was also that mother hen that could create the environment in which other people could have an unlock moment? And that's what motivated me to become a coach. So that was one of the very tangible ways in which it changed me. It made me realize there was a different way of helping people that wasn't about telling them what to do and having all the answers, but was about helping to create an environment in which they would dig a bit deeper and they would find something that they hadn't previously found. And I think that brings to life really nicely the, the difference between an unlocked moment of knowing something and a moment of action. So often when I talk to people and I say, oh, tell me about the pivotal times in your life, and they'll say, let me tell you about when I started my coaching training. Let me tell you about when I did my first coaching session, I had that first conversation with the coach, uh, if they're a coach, but in, in whatever walk of life they're in. And then I say, when did you know you were going to do that? Oh, that's different. I was on this course. I was in the new forest. And, and the unlocked moment is that moment of, yeah, I know. And I've talked to people on the podcast where they've said, the time I acted on it was, one person said, at the age of 28, I acted on the thing I knew. I knew it in, at the age of 18. Mm. It took me 10 years to go from, I know it, to I'm ready to actually act on that thing that I've always known. You know? yes. and, and that's really interesting. So when you talk to people about unlocked moments, you access a thing that they often don't normally think about. Because they tend to think about the action day, the day I quit my job, the day I walked out of the office, the yes. day I, whatever, I got married. When did you know you were ready to do that? When did you know that you had the courage to step out on your own path? Oh, that's different. That's the age of 12 when my dad said, I don't think you're going to amount to anything. Yeah. That was my unlocked moment. You know, it's a different time. Yes, yes. And the, the measure, measure of that for me is that I didn't talk about the experience I've just shared with you and your listeners with anyone for three years. Right. Not even my wife, because I was so scared of the judgment, uh, the ridicule, you know, the fact, what, you mean you went on a course and you came back and you believed in God? Uh, what's all that about? Um, I, I was so, uh, uh, partly I was, I was scared of that judgment and ridicule. And partly every time I went to try and talk about it, I couldn't find the words. And also there was so much emotion would come up in me that I couldn't get the words out even if I could find them. And, and the measure of where, of the journey between being 32 and being 59 today is that I can come on this podcast and talk to you about this. I can find words. And whilst I still know it's a hugely pivotal moment in my life, the emotion is is still there, but it's, it's, a, it's a faint echo of, of, of the emotion that happened at the time. And uh, that helps me communicate. Although sometimes I miss the rawness um, and the intensity of, of the experience, but I'm grateful that without that rawness and intensity, I can at least talk about it <laughs> and, and put words to it. Do you remember the first time you talked about it? Well, I remember, I remember the first time I talked about it outside of the family, yes. And I remember I, remember I was in, um, it's interesting, as you say, how you remember these things. I was in Madrid, of all places. I was on a conference. I was sat having a coffee with a colleague of mine who was more than a colleague. He was really a bit of a soulmate. 
And um, I chose to, to share with him. And, um, you know, of course, when, when you do share like that, you, you, you realize that not everyone in the world thinks you've gone mad. And, and it's okay. It's okay. You survive. The world doesn't stop spinning. You get up, you have your coffee, life carries on. You're not as important as you think you are. Um, <laughs> you know, so the more I shared, the easier it got. And also I read a lot um, and I, re I realized that other people had had similar experiences that I wasn't, you know, I hadn't lost the plot, that this was, this was actually quite a common human experience if you, if you want to go and read about it. So I, there were a number of things that happened over a period of time that helped me become more confident to share and to, um, to, to put into words what at the time felt like an experience that I was, was beyond words. And do you think, do you draw a connection to how it shaped you as a coach? Hmm. Uh, yes. I mean, you mentioned the book that Ian and I wrote, Challenging Coaching. And courage is a big part of, I think, being a challenging coach. Courage and compassion uh, and bringing both to bear on, on a situation. And I know that my unlock moment, A, required great courage from me, but it also required great courage from the lady who was sat with me when it was all going on, and compassion from her. But it wasn't just compassion. And I think, I think that, that theme of courage and the role of courage in being a coach and indeed in being a coachee is, is something that I've always held very close in, in my coaching style and my coaching presence because I think I have felt that, the impact of that, the positive impact of, of that. And I believe it's an important part of a transformational journey. It's very, very interesting. And a question that's bubbling up in my mind is, does that person, does that lady that you went on the walk with in New Forest, does she know now what you went through? And at what point did you have that conversation with her? Well, again, yeah, it's very interesting um, how these things happen. I'd like to think that even in the, in the course and the remainder of the course, that she picked up, you know, the impact that, that this experience had had on me. And I certainly would have thanked her in that time when I was with her. For some reason, I never then was able to make contact with her after the event. I tried to, but it never happened. And I just concluded it wasn't meant to happen and that she was like an angel that had appeared. She'd done what angels do and she'd gone. And presumably she was going to be an angel for somebody else, you know, in, in, in what she did. I'm eternally grateful to her, but it wasn't meant to be like an ongoing arrangement or relationship. You know, it just, it, it was one of those things where people appear and then they step away, but they can, they can change you. And I, and I think of that sometimes Gary, in terms of coaching, you know, that as coaches, we, we never know what the impact might've been of our work. And obviously it's lovely when somebody says to you, that was a great coaching session. I got such a huge amount out of it. But I think we have to have faith in um, that even the most frustrating coaching sessions that we might think in the moment nothing came out of 
who knows, it could have sown a seed that in five years' time, you know, leads to an unlock moment for somebody else. And we have to be, I think, again, humble in our work in, in that we are one of many pairs of hands and feet that are at work with people. And um, sometimes you just don't know what part you're playing, but she played a very big part for me. I hope she picked that up in the week, but it wasn't meant to be, like I say, a, an ongoing lifetime relationship or anything like that. So if you're listening to this podcast and in the late 1990s, you remember a meaningful walk in the new forest with a young guy you seem to be getting a lot of other coaching <laughs> then you might be listening to him on this podcast yes if, wouldn't if that be are, amazing I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart if you are <laughs> if you are listening to to it and uh, i hope you pick that up energetically wherever you are yeah i wrote down four words here that i think come through you know what, what you what you say and and in the work that you've done and the four words i wrote down were presence courage trust purpose um and they're big words big words for big important things that people leaders leaders with a capital l leaders with a small l are mm. trying to figure out and i'm, I'm interested i will come to purpose but i'm interested in trust and mm. you've done a lot of work in this trust area mm. tell me about your thinking about what trust is and how you really create it when when you're working with people who really create trust how do they do that again because it's because it's in my mind because we've talked about that unlock moment you know I'm, I'm thinking about the trust that was created for me and i talk about safety i talked about safety and that uh, psychological safety which again is not a word or a phrase that was used back then and and is only recently maybe become more mainstream but i think that trusted environments are psychologically safe and those are two sides of the same coin, if you like. I think the words trust and psychological safety. So when a leader is creating trust, they're making the space safe. When, when a coach is creating trust, they're making the space safe. Safe for what? Safe for people to do the best work that they can do, which often involves uh, revealing levels of vulnerability uh, about themselves that they haven't previously done. So... I think that's a little bit what trust means to me. And in terms of how you do that, that was really the basis of the research that I did at Aston Business School, uh, the doctorate that I completed, was to get at the science of how do you do this? If you think it's important and if you think it's critical to your work as a leader or a coach, how do you do it better? And that's where, for me, as quite a logical person, models can help. And so what came out of the research was a model of trust that had three pillars, nine habits, and therefore you're breaking one word into three words, into nine words, and then you can have much richer, better conversations about how to improve this thing called trust if you've got its components and uh, you, know, you can work the, the components in different ways. So that's a little bit more about the, about the how, you know, what, what is trust to me and how would you go about being better at that if you wanted to create those psychologically safe spaces. And a thing that I think is a real game changer in the way that you, you talk about this is when I think about so many leaders I've worked with, I've had the experience of sometimes being led by, a thing you hear really commonly is, you should trust me more. Why don't you trust me enough? And what you're saying is, 
challenging to those leaders. What did you do to create an environment where people would trust you as opposed to looking for their lack of trust and then berating them for the absence of it? So it becomes in your control, in your ownership to create an environment where, of course, people trust you because you created a trusting dynamic. Yes, because the only thing that you can control is your own trustworthiness. Whether somebody else then decides to trust you is a different question, and it's their question that they're in control of. Because some people will trust no one, regardless of how trustworthy they are, because of their own life story and the decisions they've made from that. So you, you can't impose yourself upon that. But what you can do is work on your own trustworthiness, that you are as worthy of trust as you could possibly be. And then you hope that as many people as possible take the risk of trusting you, of going a bit further with you than they have with anyone else because you've exhibited these nine habits in a more explicit and impactful way to them than maybe anybody else has done. And can you bring to life maybe one of these nine habits? What's one of them where you, you think, I really want people to do more of this thing? This is the one that I very commonly see missed when people are not creating that trusted environment. Yeah, uh, great. Because if you ask somebody how to do this, a lot of people will immediately say, a lot of leaders will say, oh, well, I need to keep my promises or I need to be honest. And yes, those are part of the, the habits of trust. The ones that I think are more hidden or less intuitive, the one that I would pull out as being best example of that would be habit number nine, actually, the habit of being kind. How many people, if you said, what does it take for you to trust me, would talk about, or why do you trust me? I trust you because you're kind. But if we think about what we talked about with psychological safety, kindness is one of the most powerful ways of creating a psychologically safe environment. And um, I think kindness is an underestimated tool of leadership. I don't think it's an underestimated quality of being a human being, because we've, we've always known that it's great for human beings to be kind. But have we always known that it's great for leaders to be kind? I'm not sure. I think our prevailing mindsets on leadership have tended to exclude kindness as being soft and ineffective and weak. Uh, whereas what I'm suggesting is that if you're a leader that wants to be known for trust, kindness is one of the nine habits and it's essential member of that other eight group of behaviors. And it's very interesting because there's a lot of people talking about kindness and leadership now. It's becoming, and I think it's really, really important, as you say, there's a lot of people who struggle with concepts like kindness and leadership because it feels soft or maybe they think it feels woke or something else yeah how do you bring it to life for people who struggle with that idea of really is that a is that a leadership thing i think the way that i would um, help people to embrace it would be to reassure them that there are nine habits and they're not all about being kind so there are habits about delivering there are habits about being honest um, you know, there are, there are tough habits of trust, uh, if you want to use that language, but there are also softer habits of trust, like being humble, like being kind. So kindness is, is one aspect. And just because you might, for five minutes in your leadership day, be kind, doesn't mean that you're suddenly going to lose all your 
discipline and in focus as an effective implementer of tasks and leader of people. Uh, and I think sometimes people scare themselves because they think, oh, it's the thin end of a wedge. If I, if I do one kind thing, it's going to destroy me because it will just take over my life. Well, no, it will just add. It will expand your leadership presence because you'll have another choice that you can make in certain situations. And it's a powerful choice to make in certain situations, but not, we're not saying you're going to make that choice in all situations, in all times. So I think it's a little bit about perspective and, uh, and getting, getting perspective on these things and not trying to make everything ideological, you know, and binary. It's part of the formula, but there are many other components. You made me think of a friend of mine, Pinky Lilani. Pinky Lilani uh, runs major women leadership awards and events and communities, but also now a lot of work in kindness and leadership. And I was just pulling out this uh, thing that she said. I think kindness for me is one of the most important qualities in our lives. And I have a mantra, which is you have not lived a perfect day unless you've done something for someone who can never repay you. And I thought it's such a nice way to bring to life, you know, think as a leader, those moments when, you know, you pick out the most junior member of the team that doesn't expect to be seen mm. um, yeah. and heard and spoken to and asked for their opinion. And something that's small for you can be absolutely transformational for, for them. So it's, that's very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the things I say to leaders when I present this model is, isn't it amazing? Don't you have an amazing job? Because you can make someone's day every day because you're the boss. Yeah. It's so easy to do, and it's such a great thing to do. Uh, isn't it an amazing job that you've got um, that you can make someone's day every day, but you have to choose to do it? And, yeah, I just think permission to be kind, folks, you know, why not? Yeah. So, so trust leaders, small L and capital L, are looking to create trusted environments. Leaders, small L and capital L, are all trying to discover their purpose. Mm. Are those two connected? Are trust and purpose connected? Yes, in as much that one of the habits, one of the nine habits is that trusted leaders are also great evangelists. And what I mean when I use that word evangelize, evangelist, is that they have an inspiring vision. They have a mission. They're on a mission. They know how to articulate that in a way that inspires others. And they have a resilience to bounce back from disappointments. And the resilience comes from the power of the mission uh, that they hold. And therefore, everything I said about mission and, and vision, you can also substitute the word purpose. You know, that, that to be a trusted leader particularly in the age that we're in now, I think part of what is required of you is that you have that evangelizing knowledge of what your calling is and you're able to articulate it in a way that ignites that passion in other people who are also sharing aspects of that purpose. And if I compare that, you know, I talk about the purpose-driven world versus the profit-driven world that... I think historically purpose was given to us and renamed profit. And, and we all bought into a time of history where, where we took the purpose as given and we called it profit. I actually think that was an illusion. It might have been an illusion that, that worked in a sort of very crude way for a period of time, but I think it's not sufficient of a, 
holistic understanding of purpose to take us into this next stage of organizational life that, that we are now in. Fantastic. And you've come back now into the, the world of book writing after a few years away. And your new book coming out later in 2024 is called Force for Good, How to Thrive as a Purpose-Driven Leader. So tell us a little bit about the book and tell us why now is the time that you've decided to write it and bring it out. Well, I think, again, in terms of that metaphor of like an egg waiting to crack, since I wrote The Trusted Executive, I then founded a purpose-driven organization called The Trusted Executive. So it's a not-for-profit organization that was partly had a mission to help leaders build high-trust cultures, but in parallel to gift the profits of that work to a charitable foundation, a Christian charitable foundation, which again aligns with my, with my purpose. So I've had seven years of living the life of a purpose-driven leader. And I've experienced how different it is to live in the life of a profit-driven leader, which I did earlier in my career. And I would like to help those people who've made that choice to stand for purpose. I'd like to help them be able to do that role better. Because in my experience, the pressures and demands and opportunities of the purpose-driven leadership life are very different to the pressures, demands, and opportunities of the profit-driven life. And I don't think a lot has been written about that. I think a lot has been written about purpose and why you should be a purpose-driven leader. But I'm actually writing to people who've already made the choice and who are on the journey and are finding it difficult and are finding it different. And I'm bringing, A, some of my own war stories to that um, work, but also, obviously, the experience of many purpose-driven leaders that I've worked with who have, I've seen them do fantastic things and equally I've seen them struggle with, with, with certain things. So I'm, I'm trying to bring all that body of experience and package it in a way that is accessible and, and meaningful for people who are on that journey. Interestingly, the title of the book, Force for Good, comes from the B Corp mission statement, which is making business a force for good. Um, that's why I'm aligned with B Corp because I think leaders who are on the B Corp journey are purpose-driven leaders. I think there'll be more and more leaders who go on that journey in the coming years. And I'd love to sort of be part of that community, helping them grow and have more impact uh, over a period of time, because I think it's a very interesting movement that is happening globally, um, but also here in the UK. And I was very interested by you picking up on how the challenges for purpose-driven leadership and profit-driven leadership are, are, are different from one another. I read a really interesting phrase about the book, leading for purpose will help leaders examine whether their current behaviors, ways of working, and business strategies are appropriate to the ethical, intellectual, and emotional challenges of the purpose-driven business life. And ethical, intellectual, and emotional are not always words that you hear apply to the profit-driven business life. So how have you come to that and saying that is one of the areas where the goals and challenges are, are rather different in this kind of world? Well, I think with profit, when, when purpose was boiled down to just one word profit, it was a convenient simplification that the moment you make purpose as, as singular and as sort of tangible as one thing called, called profit, you create an artificially exclusive world. And actually, I think leaders who are working in that world, their jobs are still difficult, but at least the, 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 you know, they, they would say the goalposts are fixed. 
the lines on the pitch are very clear. The rules of the game are very clear because we've been doing it for for, for hundred years. You know, whereas if you go into the purpose-driven world, it's like inventing a new sport where people haven't decided what size the pitch should be yet, or whether the goalposts of you know a, a, a twenty meters high or, or ten meters high. It's a much more open space, and therefore leaders in, in the middle of that ambiguity, purpose-driven leaders are faced with with very different challenges that are a bit more, in my mind, existential than than a profit-driven leader. And that's why I think it creates intellectual and emotional and potentially spiritual um, demands on people that the profit-driven world will not have prepared them for. And for the cynics who are looking at successful purpose-driven businesses and saying, very, very often those are businesses that are inherently highly profitable and therefore it's just that they don't worry so much about are we, are we break even or not, therefore we can indulge ourselves in purpose. How do leaders navigate that when they're not necessarily a stupendously profitable kind of enterprise and genuinely they need to be financially sustainable and also they would like to be purpose-driven? How do they manage that sort of dichotomy? Yeah, I think one of the things I probably need to clarify, and I try to be careful with this in the book, is that when we talk about the shift from profit-driven to purpose-driven, we're not talking about excluding profit as one of the criterias of a sustainable business, successful business, impactful business. We're saying that it's it's the essential fuel for, it's the passport into the next stage of the game. The game isn't about profit, but profit is what allows you a platform from which to achieve purpose. And so profit becomes a, a lower order necessary activity and outcome, but we're expanding that to add higher goals that are not instead of, but are as well as. So that's why, again, the purpose-driven leader's job is harder than the profit-driven leader's job because they have to do everything that the profit-driven leader did and do it well, and then we're going to ask them to do some more. Fascinating. And you've worked with a huge number of CEOs around the world. What do you think is the essential DNA of the CEOs we need today and in the future to be able to navigate you know, this shift from profit to purpose-led leadership? Well, interesting, and maybe going a bit full circle, I think these leaders have to have gone on their own personal journey, which included at least one unlock moment. I think they have to have gone that deep in themselves and gone through such personal transformation themselves that they can then offer that to the world, offer that experience to the world, not in a sort of holier-than-thou fashion, but in a credible, you know, when you look in someone's eyes and you think, have they, have they, have they been there? And I think purpose-driven leaders if they're going to stay the course and have integrity and authenticity on that path, they need to have been there personally. They need to have had that moment in a new forest or wherever it was where the world seemed to fall apart, but, but somehow it didn't. Because I think only that gives you the faith that, that you're going to need at some point on a purpose-driven journey. It's so interesting. And, and I think that as I've understood more about the unlock moment, the more conversations I've had with people about their own experiences of unlock moments, but also 
for people like you who are deep thinkers and experts in various different aspects of this, it's realizing that in looking at those very focused, very vivid moments of knowing a thing you didn't know before, realizing that that is absolutely a lens on your deepest sense of purpose. And sometimes people come to a different place when they really think about that moment on actually what their purpose is from the thing they wrote down in the purpose workshop when they were sitting for an hour in a group of people with a load of post-it notes. It's a different thing when you go deep, deep. And what you said, I think, is super important that it's hard to do this. It's emotional to do this. You've got to break down a few barriers sometimes to do it, and you've got to be in the right headspace to do it. Personally, I completely agree how important it is for leaders to really find their center, their anchor, and to be a truly authentic leader. I think it's important. So for people who are listening to this podcast, listening to your story and your journey, who are leaders in work or in life, what's one thing you'd like them to take away from this conversation? If we think about where we've been in the last uh, 40 minutes or so, the thing I'd like them to take away most is that I hope they felt like they were listening to someone who was able on the one hand to talk about faith and God and spirituality, but on the other hand is a very focused and successful business person and practical worldly individual, you know, that I hope, I hope that what people take away is that it's not either or, you know, this is an inclusive sort of approach that you can play many different tunes and um, people will be okay with that. You know, it's not, not obviously going to be the tunes that everybody else wants to play, but, but it's your tune and you playing that tune fully and in its full sort of uh, breadth is, is what you're here to do. And um, I just wish uh, everyone, you know, as much sort of courage uh, on that path to play that tune as fully and as, and as gloriously as they can in their, in their leadership and in their coaching. You hope they heard that. I know they heard it because I heard it loud and clear. So thank you so much. How can people find out more about you and the work you do? Well, there's two books out there. There's Challenging Coaching, which you very kindly um, referenced in terms of the impact it had, had for you. There's a trusted executive, and there's going to be a third child in the family um, next year, Force for Good. So I hope that you might see that in a bookstore or on Amazon or something in the coming months. And if you do, and it catches your eye, and you remember this podcast, then um, that's, that's a way to carry on the conversation. Fantastic. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For esteemed coach, speaker and author, Dr. John Blakey, it was going deep and discovering his faith whilst on a residential retreat in the New Forest that shaped his own personal path and sense of purpose. Check out his books, Challenging Coaching, The Trusted Executive, and what I'm sure will be another bestseller, Force for Good, How to Thrive as a Purpose-Driven Leader. He'll be coming out on Amazon, and at all good bookstores in just a few months' time. John, it's been such a privilege to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. Pleasure. If you've enjoyed this conversation with a world-class thinker on purpose-driven leadership and coaching, then check out episode 79 with Master Coach Claire Pedrick on discovering your inner human. 
And if you resonated with how John faced into a new vulnerability in his unlocked moment, check out episode 74 with Niraj Kapoor on how the loneliness of lockdown prompted him to share more with others. And episode 65 for my emotional conversation with Alexandra Wyman on how she put her life back together after the suicide of her husband and set out to help others in similar need. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.